If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. John Ridley describes Idris Elba as a renaissance man. Were he not so humble, he might just as easily apply the expression to himself. An Oscar-winning screenwriter for The Magnificent 12 Years a Slave, he's also a dab hand at directing, producing, novel writing and stand-up comedy. He's ferociously thoughtful, considered and intelligent too, so our latest offering is as much about sociology as sound. I'm Edith Bowman and you're listening to Soundtracking, a weekly podcast about music on the screen. John's latest offering is Gorilla, made by the ever-reliable Showtime and available in full via Sky Atlantic. Starring Idris, Frida Pinto and Babu Sese, it focuses on the little-known story of the British Black Panther movement in 1970s London. In addition to some rare contemporary grooves from that era, you're about to hear extracts from Hans Zimmer's score for 12 Years a Slave, Wadi Watchell's bespoke arrangements for the Jimi Hendrix biopic All Is By My Side, and a spot of Carter Burwell's work on Three Kings, which John scripted. There's also a world-famous TV theme on the way from a show that I, for one, didn't know John worked on. But in putting this episode together, we owe a special debt of gratitude to his music supervisor on Gorilla, Sarah Bridge. Now, not only did Sarah provide us with hard-to-find source tracks by Britain's first-ever all-black rock group Noir, she also delivered examples from Max Richter's score, including Love Song, the piece that's playing now. Perhaps most excitingly, though, she's given us an exclusive recording of Femi Kuti's track, Look Around, which he actually performed live for a club scene that features in the narrative. John, welcome to Soundtracking. It's a pleasure. We're going to talk about Gorilla, but you're someone who is involved in so many aspects of creating film, TV. When someone asks you what you do, what do you say? Uh, (laughs) That's a very good question that I don't know if I directly say any one thing, because Mm. I will tell you, even at my age, it is awesome, and I don't mean that in a hipster way, to be doing the things that I've always wanted to do. Yeah. So to say that, well, I direct, or to say that I get to write for television or film or produce, you know, it's like speaking a phrase that, that, that should not be said quite aloud because yeah. someone will hear it and go, oh, well, you're not supposed to be doing that. You're, you're, you're actually just supposed to go to movies or enjoy TV. So honestly, without trying to sound overly humble, I, I really just try to appreciate the things that I do and more importantly, appreciate the people that I've been allowed to work with. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been lucky enough to see the first two episodes of your new project, Guerrilla, which is six parts that's on Sky and people can access all six episodes from the off you can tell that obviously when it's set music is such a big part of the culture but you were very precise about how you wanted music within this project and that if we saw music 
it had to be live. If they were in a club, yeah. they had to feel the reverberations of that music that was going on around them. That was very, very important because there's no substitute for you know live music. There's yeah. no substitute for that feeling. Certainly in real life, you know, you don't want to always go to a club and you're paying for a band and then they're, they're playing a track all the way through. People know the difference. Mm. And I think it's very important for the actors on the set to be put in that mood for the sound, you know, the way it bounces off the walls, the way you record it. But also even as a director, that extra effort that goes into the day, anything that causes your crew to focus a little bit more, to figure things out, to figure out how we're going to do it. I think that's a really good thing. Some people would look at it and go, well, you know, I mean, that, no, that's extra work. I, I never look at work as being extra. I look at it as being additive. But also, you know, when we get Fima Kunti to come in and lay a track, yes, we could have gotten one of his tracks, but to have him there, you know, someone who is connected with the iconography of that time period, um, to have that club setting, to feel the energy of the actors, the excitement, there's no substitute for having that liveness, that rawness, that reality in there. When you can do it, why not? When you look around, look around. and see for yourself, sir. of getting Femi there, the fellow was in London at that time, yeah. recording his London Scene album. And, and how, did, how did you go about getting that? I mean, it's a wonderful thing to be able to achieve. Yeah, I have to give all praise to our music supervisor, Sarah Bridge. You know, there are any number of wonderful music supervisors out there, and that title, that job description, can be as large or as small as any individual wants it to be. It can be just picking tracks and putting it in front of a director and saying, yeah. look, here's some interesting stuff. But at the same time, when it came to having live music, you know, Sarah, she went out. She found these individuals. She cajoled them into coming over here. She worked with the bands to make sure that they understood what we were doing. I mean, they were obviously immensely talented, yeah. but they might not understand what it is we're trying to do, what it is we're trying to accomplish, and all the things. I mean, it was essentially a live recording session, and somebody has to oversee that, and Sarah did that and did it absolutely brilliantly. But we were very focused, if we were finding tracks that we were going to play, to not be the obvious top of the pops songs, you know, to go a little bit deeper and dive deeper. And Sarah was able to do that. I guess the track she found by Noir would be an example of that. The System, for instance, which is one of theirs that features. Absolutely. Um, I cannot say enough about her work, what she brought to the table, and educated me. You know, in every department there were individuals who educated me, and that was part of that partnership that we had. It was wonderful to come over here and people be excited about doing the show, but part of that for me was just going on a listening tour. And anybody who had knowledge, who chose to share that knowledge, you know, we wanted to make them part of that team. Time is, time was, and time will always be. 
You know, 1971, it's hard to believe, but it, it's becoming distant history. And I think there are a lot of folks who don't understand that London at that time period, this was the seat of art, culture, cinema, music. And it wasn't just, you know, the Stones and the Beatles. Um, there were so many different kinds of culture that were uh, coming from this space. So I think it was very, very important for us to represent all of that in its many facets, uh, and certainly music and sound was one of them. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is just a look at life. Within the first two episodes that I've been lucky enough to see, I'm completely invested in your characters. Within the first two minutes, I'm so angry for them. And it's quite terrifying how it's like history repeating itself in the times that we're in now. Why did you want to tell this story and how did it come about? Well, this was a story that had fascinated me since I was young. I, I grew up in the 1970s and, you know, in America, there was a lot of the kinds of political movements or guerrilla movements that were anti-establishment, very philosophical, extremely passionate. And when you're young, and particularly when you're a young person of color, um, it's exciting to you. But then as you get older and you start to understand consequences, and the consequences of people's actions or their inactions, these individuals, as passionate as they may have been, they were imperfect people. And the choices that they made were far from perfect, and they really affected other people's lives, uh, sometimes to the positive and sometimes to the extreme negative. So that was a story that I wanted to tell, and you know, I guess it was maybe four, almost five years ago, I was doing post-production on a film here in London. And this was before a lot of the many positive things that had happened in my career recently. And a producer over here, Patrick Spence, just asked me, what would you like to do? You know, what kinds of stories would you like to tell? And I told him about Gorilla. And, you know, he thought it was fascinating. And he asked me if I thought that it was a story that could be told here. And I said, no, I don't think so. It seemed very American. Individuality lies within each one of us. Yeah, yeah. Is it good or is it bad, baby? That's you to say, yeah. Mm, why don't you let me be here? Why don't you let me see? Why don't you let me be here? Why don't you let me see? Why don't you let me be here? Why don't you let me see? Why don't you let me be here? Why don't you let me see? Why don't you let me be here? Why don't you let me see here? Why don't you let me be here? Why don't you let me see here? Patrick said to me, you know what, if I introduce you to some people and if you feel like there is a story here, would you consider moving it over here? And when we did talk to people, there was a black power movement. It was certainly different than what was going on in the United States, um, but there was a movement and it was very vibrant and there were struggles and there was the Immigration Act and there was the move to segregate people into patriots and non-patriots and there was the Black Power Desk, you know, this very secretive organization within the Metropolitan Police. All of these things that I think people were not aware of and the movement was large and was expansive and it encompassed a good many kinds of individuals um, and that very much fascinated me. So in meeting these people and talking to these people, in finding people who were willing to trust us to share their story, to help 
tell their story. I felt that we could move forward. I've learned so much already from it. I was born in 74. Yeah. I grew up in a little fishing village up in Scotland, tiny little community and stuff, no idea of what was going on. And it's so important. It is important. And you know, the thing is in America, as far as I'm concerned, we certainly don't talk about the struggles of other individuals enough. So to come to another country and find out that those struggles are talked about even less is surprising to me. And I will say this, and I mean this with all sincerity, you know, I personally, and I think we in America, perceive the United Kingdom as being an amazingly progressive nation. Certainly it's had its difficult histories, but we, or I will say at the very least I, you know, look at this nation as being very progressive and very, very open-minded. And by and large, it certainly is. But there is a difficult history and there is a difficult past that, for whatever reason, isn't spoken about. And the problem is when people don't speak about history and they don't understand the larger ramifications and everyone's role in it and that oppression has many different faces and those who are oppressed were from many different backgrounds, then people start to be very selective in how they see history. So I think it is very, very important for people to understand that um, this is a shared history. It is a real history. Certainly this show is a departure point. And for us in America, you know, we do that a lot, whether it's um, you know, Mad Men or the Americans or other shows like that. But for the elements of this show that were deeply rooted in history, it was very, very important for us to get it absolutely right. And we believe that we have. You're in this life because you were made in the image of your creator. Strong in our pride. But when you're black and British, there's a constant struggle to understand who you really are. citizen or a visitor if you stand up and say you're old what's yours he treats you like a criminal we'll educate our own brothers and sisters we'll raise them we'll be mindful of them you're here because you were black you're soldiers now How does music form a relationship with the things that you do? Is music an important part of your work life? It's very central. Generally speaking, whatever project I'm working on, there tends to be a song or a track that I will hear that, for whatever reason at that time, I begin to associate with the story. That track goes to the head of my playlist. I will play it over and over again. I will play it when I'm out running. I'll play it when I'm driving in the car. People do ask me, they go, you know, how do you write? Do you sit down and outline? Do you sketch things out? And I'll say that the majority of the time that I spend writing, I really just spend thinking hmm. about the piece or thinking about what moves me emotionally and how that then would look on screen and what those moments are and what that music is that goes with it. Now the interesting thing, or maybe it's interesting maybe just to me, but if you watch most of the work that I do, it's very dry. There's not actually a great deal of music in it and the music is very specific. We'll use needle drops as source. You know, it needs to be playing from a record player or playing from a radio and the score is exceptionally minimal. So even though I think about music a lot, even though I 
have a song or a sound or a track that's going in my mind, when it comes time to lay down the piece, there tends to be very, very, very little music in it because I think it needs to be very specific. I, I just think that there tends to be an overabundance of music and not generally a trust that the audience can find their own emotions. Yeah. Like anything else in life, people, they know what they feel. They know what they're meant to feel. And I think, you know, if you need music at that point, it's great to have it. But if you need it at that point, then you've messed up so many other things along the way <laughs> that that extra little bit of music is not going to help. The composer for Gorillaz, Max Richter. Max Richter, who is another incredible oh, wow. individual. <laughs> um, it's an odd story. I was... Um, working on a television series three years ago that I don't believe, unfortunately, people can see over here in the UK called American Crime. And it was at the very nascent stages of it, and I was just thinking about the show, and there are all these worries and concerns about what the show is going to be. And I was at a um, music program for one of our kids. You know, it's for the whole school, and so you're forced to sit and watch everybody else's <laughs> children, yeah. and God bless everybody else's children. But They try. Know, they do try. <laughs> and so there was a dance piece going on, and there was a piece of music started playing, and it just hit me right in the heart. You know, everything else just dropped away, and it was just this amazing, amazing piece. And the piece was November by Max. And as I said earlier, you know, once I hear a piece of music, I started playing it over and over and over again in my head, and I started writing the series around this piece, and it was an amazing piece. So I'd hoped to work with Max on that. I wasn't able to. You know, there's always a, a good news and bad news yeah. with these stories. And the unfortunate thing, I wasn't able to work with Max at that time. The good thing was I was able to work with another composer, Mark Isham, who was absolutely amazing. But Max's work was just absolutely spectacular. So when we did this show over here, one of the first things that we tried to do, what we did, was reach out to Max and say, would you be interested in composing and working on Gorilla? And thankfully he said yes, and thankfully he was able to do the music. But it really is sort of strange, you know, it's very fortuitous how things happen, mm -hmm. but to be at your kid's, <laughs> you know, music event and to end up from that space adding a sound to events that were very true and very difficult about London in the 1970s. Um, I don't think anybody would have said, oh, you know, that's how this was going to happen, but it, it is how it happened.
Max, you know, he loves minimalism. You know, that is one of his hallmarks and can take a very few instruments or a very few notes and make them so powerful and make them so emotive. So he was just the perfect fit for this kind of uh, show. When the music is there, when it does arrive, it arrives so forcefully and so powerfully, even at the bare minimum, at its most reductive level. Um, and Max is just, you know, I'm, I'm sure he would blush if I said it, but he is a genius. I mean, he is a real true genius. And to work around people who are not only geniuses, but then collaborative on top of it. Yeah. Um, because some people are geniuses and they don't want to hear anything else. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Max is not only just a real true artist, but was so eager to be engaged and be part of um, what we're doing on this show. And, and the music is just absolutely stunning. It really is. love about what you do is the is the stories and the people that you bring to our attention that are, are very important and 12 Years a Slave was an example of a project that hugely successful and, and quite rightly so that you were involved in and finding these stories and these people that you want to tell stories about is it easy to find them? They're there if you listen you know they're there if you spend time with it you know 12 Years a Slave it wasn't just about that book itself you know that was almost four years of research just about the slave era and so many things that as a black American that I sort of took for granted or I thought that I knew or thought that I was aware of just from stories that were hand-me-down. But there were so many things that I didn't know about the transformation of indentured servitude to slavery, to slavery that was predicated on the concepts of racial inferiority that then became uh, codified by law. You know, this didn't happen overnight. You know, slavery in America, people say, well, you know, there's slavery all over the world. Um, but slavery in America was very unique, was a peculiar institution, and it was um, constructed very specifically. So part of writing is, a big part of it is listening. Um, there's so many elements of this story. When I say this story, I talk about Gorilla. Um, you know, originally it was meant to be set in America, in um, the Bay Area, in California. But to make it work over here, so much of it was about listening and listening to other people and listening to stories, and stories that I think people are going to find very, very difficult, but that's okay. Um, because it's the difficult stories are the ones that need to be told, not the easy ones. Funny you should say that. I recently spoke to Nicholas Brundell, the composer who worked on some of the music yeah. within 12 Years a Slave Who Did yeah. Moonlight. Yeah. And, and, amazing young and man. Incredible. Absolutely amazing young man. And it was wonderful to hear him talk about working on Moonlight, but also how he was involved with the in situ music within 12 Years a Slave, or yeah. that live music being played within, within the film as well. Yeah, Nick, first of all, he's an amazing young man, absolutely amazing. And I think people certainly appreciated the music that was in 12 Years a Slave, but a lot of it was not captured historically. Mm. And Nicholas really went on this sort of anthropological dig to resurrect this music. We, we take recording and everything, recording everything for granted, and, and not only take it for granted, we just over-record every single moment. Um, so there was this 
space and time that was really kind of lost, mm. particularly uh, things that were related to the slaves, because if they were not approved by the masters of the prevailing culture, um, there was no desire to preserve it. So what he did, what he was able to do, how he was able to quite literally resurrect these sounds, this music, um, this experience, which was obviously so central to the story because Solomon was a, a musician, was absolutely incredible. But uh, he was an incredible young man. He is an incredible young man. Absolutely. Why did you want to make a film about it? People know the name, and they obviously really know the music, but I don't think they really know much about the person or the man, and really see him as a person. I think they see him as an icon, and, and well, they should. But I think the problem with anyone who becomes an icon is that they get lost as a person, as uh, someone who's flesh and blood and human. And not necessarily a perfect person, but that's that's all right because who is? And so it was a story to me also because what excited me about trying to tell that aspect of Jimi Hendrix's life was to not tell a cradle to grave story, but you know, focus on one year. And one particular year, and one year when he was here in London. And I think that most people have no idea that he left New York, you know, at a very early age, but kind of washed up. And he had played with Ike and Tina Turner, um, you know, he had played with other bands, he, he played with Little Richard, and, you know, never really fit in. Played with the Isley brothers and just kept getting fired and fired because he, he wouldn't fit in. I think it'd be a hell of a thing if you came over to London. London, man. There's so many great cats over there already playing, though. Well, they haven't got you. Yeah, that's for damn sure. There'll be no stick in the ass about this chord or that. They'll be mad for what you're doing over there. Eh? I mean, ev everybody there, everybody who's doing out, they're all working off the off the blue structure. No, but see, I don't want to get caught up in those kind of labels, though, you know? I don't want, I don't want it to be, okay, well, oh, he's playing no blues, or he's playing, like, you know, R&B or soul or whatever, all that kind of stuff, those cages, man. I just... I I'm not saying that it has you know, to be. It's, it's not about style, you know? It's... I want my music to go in, inside the soul of a person. You know, it's, for me, it's colors. I, I want people to feel the music the same way I see it. You know, it's, it's just colors, it's it, and... 
The rest is just painted with a little science fiction here and there. I don't want to freak you out. It's just early. I've got to get you over to London. people don't know about Noel and Mitch and how the band came together and don't know about Linda Keith and how instrumental she was in um, helping to create the person who we now think of mm. as being Jimi Hendrix. Uh, and that was a story that I really, really wanted to tell and a story that I really, really wanted to share and was a passion project of mine. And I was very fortunate to be able to tell that story. And I think, you know, that was one of those things that was one of a film too that it was not seen by a lot of people, but it was seen by the right people. And had I not had the opportunity to tell that film and share that film and work with amazing talent, Andre Benjamin, Haley Atwell, Imogen Poots, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. The, the way it was worded, um, I thought I was auditioning for the animals. The animals? <laughs> yeah, Why would you think that? No, I mean, I'm not the animals. I mean, I am an animal, but not the animals. Is, is the pay okay? I'm skinned. Scant. What's scant? Means broke. Oh, I, I dig that word. Well, well, no. Well, the gig doesn't pay that much. We're scant too. I mean, we're broke, you know, but we're cool. Yeah, we have a right laugh. Might as well hang out with us and be broke and cool. And that was a passion project, and it was the other nice thing to be able to tell it the way we wanted to. To really partner with people like Andre, who's just, you know, again, I hate to throw the word genius around, but it's just musically so gifted, and it was very, very special to be able to be part of that. Was his music really important to you growing up? It was, it certainly was, but I think, interestingly, for me, I was a little bit more exposed to Jimmy through words and through books. You know, my parents were very big on reading. Yeah. and education and they always said you know if there's any subject you want to learn on want to learn more about we'll get you the books and so I was fascinated by Jimmy you know I'll be honest you know the first time I heard his music it was it was far beyond me but you know this black guy who was into rock and roll who had a distinct style and look all of that was interesting so I wanted to read about him and my parents just got me books. And so my introduction, I think, different than most people, it wasn't just the iconography, it wasn't just the clothes, it wasn't just the amazing style. It was a sense of him as a person and who he was as an individual. And I think that's why the approach that we took in the film was so unique. It was less about the audacity of him and more about the humanity. Yeah, the person. The person. Yeah. I do this podcast kind of started off through interviewing a gentleman that you work with as well, David O'Russell. He's like an encyclopedia when it comes to music. 
But music was such an important part of the kind of framework of Three Kings. Yeah. Was that something that was in the writing of it? There was music that I certainly offered up, but you know, David is a really amazing director, in particular about the things that he wanted to put yeah. into it. So I like to think that in the script there are things that I offered up. I certainly can't take credit for things that made it all the way through. You know, hopefully there was some inspiration there, though. <laughs> One of my, the most brilliant things I learned about you from doing a bit of research was that you also wrote on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I love you even more than I already do for that. I <laughs> think you. it's brilliant. And it's one of those things, though, it stood the test of time. It, it was. You can you know, it was, watch it again and again and again, it and it was, makes me smile from the inside out. It was a very fun show to work on, that cast. They were great. They were like family. They loved each other. Watching Will as a young talent transition into a leading man was absolutely amazing. So it was a great time. It really, really was. It was, it was a lot of fun. Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped turned upside down and I'd like to take a minute just sit right there I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air what's next well for me hopefully a vacation I've been <laughs> very blessed uh, as I said I, I have a show that I do in the States American Crime uh, Gorilla is just launching there's a documentary film that I've just finished about uh, the LA uprising from 1992 yeah so there's been quite a bit. There's been quite a bit of work. I've been very, very blessed. Uh, I've been very fortunate to have people trust me with their stories, um, to be able to speak to them and support them has been great. But yeah, probably more than anything, a little, little break would be nice. <laughs> John, thank you for your time. Thank you. I deeply appreciate it. Thank you very much. Credits to Gorilla, that's How Long by Noir. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with screenwriter, producer and director, John Ridley. My huge thanks to John for taking the time to talk to us and to his music supervisor, Sarah Bridge, for helping us on all the music. All six episodes of Gorilla are available now via Sky Atlantic. Please do subscribe to the show via iTunes or edithbowman.com where you can also catch up with all of our previous episodes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do tell your friends about us if you like what you hear. Next up, it is the legend that is Mr Warren Beatty. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Thank you.